we're going to be in the gospel according to the John, the gospel according to John. Um, your, your Bible in front of you is made up of roughly two halves. There's the, what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. And at the beginning of the New Testament, there are four biographies of Jesus, four biographies of Jesus. They're called Gospels. There's really only one Gospel, but there's a, a Gospel according to Matthew and a Gospel according to Luke and Mark and a Gospel according to John, and they are like four faces of the diamond. That If you have a diamond in front of you, each one gives you a particular view of the, the, what the diamond is, and so each one of the Gospels fit together in a, a marvelous way to teach us um, about the person of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. The Gospel of John, chapter 4, the Gospel according to John. Um, as we've already seen uh, up to now in the Gospel, that um, the person of Jesus was in Jerusalem, and he was in Jerusalem with his disciples, and he had had a couple of episodes in, in the city of Jerusalem, and... Um, he has uh, he he had one episode where he cleansed the temple and um, he he's made a couple enemies in in this Jerusalem in the area and so he's going to go back north up to up to Galilee where he lives and where kind of his home base is and he's going to travel through the region of Samaria so we're going to talk about the significance of that in just a minute here but if you don't mind looking on with me John chapter four. Verses 1 through 8 is what I'm going to start with, and then we'll uh, work our way down this morning. It says this, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Let's pray. Father in heaven, one more time. I pray that you'd use this word in our hearts and in our minds, that you'd give us a deeper, greater affection for your Son. We trust that you will keep your word, uh, that you spoke to the prophet Isaiah, that it will not go out void. Amen. How should we deal with those who have sinned? How should we deal with those who've who've broken the, the moral law, who've done something that is wrong? How should we treat those who have let us down societally? Um, there, there's kind of two answers to that in our world today, and this might sound political. I certainly don't intend it to sound political, though it, this happens on both sides of the political spectrum. Uh, the, the one side is um, those who say, well, we should just forgive everyone, that we shouldn't we, we should just overlook and ignore the things that they've done wrong, and um, we should just uh, pretend that nothing happened. Um, of, of course, you'll, you'll notice that there's an inconsistency with people who say that, namely that they want to forgive everybody except for those who've done them wrong, personally. Uh, as long as you offended somebody else, as long as you've wronged somebody else, as long as you've hurt somebody else, um, then I, I'm willing to forgive you. But if it's me that you've offended, if it's me that you've sinned against, if it's me that you've wronged against, there is no mercy. 
On the other hand, there are some who would say for the least smallest infraction, um, for just going one, one mile over the speed limit, uh, that they should be, just for lack of a better word again, canceled. And of course, you'll notice that there's an inconsistency with people who believe this way as well, because they think everybody else should be canceled when they do something wrong. They should be shunned and ignored and kicked to the curb, except when they do something wrong except when they have offended others, except when their faults are brought out into the open. Then they're all about forgiveness. How should we treat those who have done wrong? How should we deal with sinners? And the reality is is that each one of us knows what it is to be a sinner. Each one of us knows what it is to let down other people. Each one of of us knows what it is to make a promise that we don't keep to not keep our word, to let others down, to not respect our parents as we ought, to not raise our children as we ought, to not be as good husbands or wives as we ought, to not be as good workers as we ought. Each one of us knows what it is to do wrong. And the question is, the question how should we treat sinners is really how, how will we be treated as sinners? Specifically, how will Jesus treat us as sinners? And in this passage this morning, we're going to see how Jesus treats sinners, how Jesus treats sinners. Now, um, those of you who are here every week, you know that I'm terrible with outlines. So I'm going to give it to you up front, and then I will ignore it the rest of the time. Three R's, because I'm somewhat Baptist. Three R's, uh, the, the, the request, the resistance, and the reveal. The request, the resistance, and the reveal. We see in this passage that Jesus is going from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north. Now, historically, there was this region between Judea and Galilee called Samaria. And Samaria was uh, composed of people who had kind of, in in the Jewish mindset of the first century, were kind of like half-breeds. They were a little bit syncretist. They kind of had, in, in the Jewish mindset, had compromised uh, by um, by various political commitments. And so many Jews of the first century considered the whole land that contained Samaritans called Samaria unclean. And so many Jews of the first century, when they went through, when they went from Galilee to Judea and vice versa, they would travel around the city or the region of Samaria. Now, Jesus, his normal practice, with one exception in the Gospels that I can find, is to go straight from Jerusalem to Samaria, or to Galilee. He goes, he goes in other words, Jesus uh, almost never travels around the region of Samaria, and there's one exception that I can find. Jesus almost always, when he's going north to south, south to north, will travel through the region of Samaria. That in and of itself is significant. And so Jesus and his disciples come to this town called Sychar. Uh, It's a village called Sychar. And they come to a a well that kind of had some historical significance. And Jesus, even though he's fully divine, he's fully God, he has a divine nature, he's also fully human. So just like the rest of us humans, he tires from his journey and he sits beside the well. And it's about the sixth hour which means it's about noontime, it's in the middle of the day, and his disciples go into the city to buy food. And there's a woman who comes out, a woman who comes out of Sychar um, to the well to, um, to offer or to draw water. Now, 
immediately we should know that there's something up here. Immediately we should know that there's something going on, there's something up, something unusual about this situation. Uh, the, the Middle Eastern sun gets really hot in the middle of the day, and so it's, it is more common for um, women specifically to go to the well early in the morning or late in the day, but at dawn or dusk. And so they would go at dawn or dusk to draw water. And it was a social event. It was kind of like when they would fill each other in on what their children had done the day before. Or can you believe that he said that? Or did you see her talking to him? That, that was kind of the, it was kind of the, the, the that time. That was their, their version of Facebook or Instagram or I don't know, whatever is popular now. And so they would kind of go at those times, and that would be a social event. It was a major social event. It was uh, an informal institution in many of these villages that would tie people to their, to their community. And there's a woman who comes in the middle of the day in the heat alone to a well. Immediately we can sense that this is a woman who carries a history, who's made many mistakes, as we'll find out, who's marked by a great deal of shame, so much shame that she does not, does not want to associate with the other women in the village. She feels uncomfortable even being around them because she doesn't want to be the source of gossip. She doesn't want to go in the morning to... to to draw water because she doesn't want to hear them talking about her behind her back to to hear to hear and to see this and so she comes in the in the middle of the day when she thinks nobody else will be there and of course Jesus is there and of course this is not a mistake in fact actually this is Jesus's plan that they'll be traveling through Samaria at such and such time and they will see her and and, and what Jesus says in verse 7 the request is, um, it maybe seems demeaning. You know, if I was to say, hey, give me a drink, that might seem bullying. But it's actually very dignifying. For a woman here who's used to being marginalized, who's used to being gossiped about, who's used to being talked around, for a woman here whose whole life is public history, for a woman who maybe feels useless, to hear somebody say, would you give me a drink? To hear a, 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 a male say, a Jewish male, a Jewish male religious leader ask her for a drink would have been dignifying, would have been very gentle. So that is the request. And yet we'll see that there's quite a bit of resistance that she offers, quite a bit of resistance. And so we see in verses 9 through 15, this next scene unfold. The, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. 
Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give to him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And so we see here that the woman responds maybe a little bit on the defensive. And she points out what is obvious to everyone who's reading this, that Jews and Samaritans have no dealing. And so it would, it's odd and it's strange and it makes no sense that a, a Jewish person would ask for a drink from a woman of Samaria, that men and women don't talk in public really. This is a social faux pas. This breaks cultural norm and cultural custom, what Jesus has said to her. And I I just love Jesus' response in verse 10. Jesus' response shuts this all down. He says, actually, I have more to give you than you have to give me. If you want to talk about who can give water, I actually have more to give you than to give me. He says, in fact, if you know who it was that said, give me a water, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He would have given you living water. Now, as we said at the beginning, the Bible is one book and it has many authors. And there's basically two halves. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the New Testament is built on top of the Old Testament. So the New Testament often refers back to the Old Testament, often cites it, and often picks up on it and interacts with it. And so even though there's many authors, human authors, to this marvelous book, that there's a profound unity to the Bible. And so when Jesus says, if you would have known who it was who was asking you for a drink, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. Jesus is referring back to this theme throughout the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, especially the prophets Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah, and as we'll see in Revelation as well, this theme of living water is very significant. So listen to a couple of these verses, and I I think this one in Jeremiah 2 is perhaps the most profound. Jeremiah 2.13, this is one of the prophets of the Old Testament, says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jeremiah says that my people have forsaken me, the fountain of what? Of living water. The same phrase that Jesus uses, and they have sought out broken cisterns. We'll come back to that. Isaiah 12, 3, 4, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Isaiah 44, 3, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my water upon, or my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Isaiah 55, 1, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And we'll see even in the, Revel- the book of Revelation in the New Testament, it builds on this. It says this in Revelation seven seventeen, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And he says again in 21.6, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Revelation 21, 17, the spirit and the bride say, come 
And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. See, when Jesus says that he can give her living water, a number of things are implied in that statement. One, it is that Jesus is offering her salvation, that he's offering her harmony, that he's offering her peace, that he's offering her rest, that he's offering her acceptance and significance and worth, that he's offering her an escape from her shame. Jesus is offering her salvation to make all the wrongs in her life right, to make everything that is sad come untrue. Jesus is offering to save her and to to provide satisfaction for her thirsty soul. But when he says that he has living water for her, he himself is claiming to be God. Because he says that, because in Jeremiah it says that God says, I am the fountain of living waters. I'm the one who gives forth living water. So when Jesus says that if you, if you would have asked him, speaking about me, he would have given you living water. He is claiming to be the fountain of living waters. He's claiming to be the one who can provide salvation because he himself is divine. He himself is God. Now, of course, the woman doesn't quite understand this. The woman in verse 11 says, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. And where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. The woman here is is thinking on an earthly plane, and she's drawing, she's kind of thinking back to the history of the people of God. And and Jesus just responds, he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, speaking about the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give to him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is putting her back to this. I can, I can save you. I can, I, I can make what is wrong in your life right. I can reconcile you. That I, I, I can do this. I can provide peace and shalom for you. And, and there's some question, we talked about this in our small group this week, there's some question about how much the woman r- understands I mean, this is this, this is not a uh, probably a, a learned woman. This is a, a you know, this is a woman who has her own her own history, and so there's there's question like how much does she really understand what Jesus is saying? And, and so I think by her verse and her response in verse fifteen, we can see that she doesn't understand everything that Jesus is saying. So it says, "Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water." But I think what she does understand is that Jesus is offering her a way to escape her shame. Because coming back to that well alone day after day, coming back to that one place reminds her of her deepest regrets, her deepest shame, her deepest mistakes and sins, that that coming to this place reminds her of everything that her life is not. And so maybe she doesn't understand all that Jesus is claiming and all that Jesus is offering, but she knows that he can provide a solution. And she thinks maybe he can help me escape that. Of course, what Jesus says to her in the next few verses does the opposite of what she wants. Verses 16 through 18, he says this. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. 
For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. This woman who's hoping she doesn't have to face her mistakes, face her sin, face her shame again. And so she, she says, oh yes, I, want to, I, I don't want to have to address those things. And Jesus does exactly what she's hoping he won't. Jesus does the exact thing that she is hoping to avoid. He opens up her shame. He opens it up for everyone to see. He says, go call your husband and come here. The, the woman, of course, is, is skirting around. She says, well, I don't have a husband. And she says, well, that, that's true because you've had five husbands and the one that you are cohabitating with now, that's not your husband. Jesus is calling her out. He's bringing these things forward. He is recognizing and acknowledging her reputation and what she has done wrong. Now, I just... I, I want to point this out. Um, maybe in our response, in our, our gut, and in our heart, we want to ask, why would he do that? That does not seem like very good evangelism. Let me just show you the very thing that you regret the most, the very thing that you're ashamed of the most, the very thing that you are hoping a Jewish religious leader won't know about you. Why does he do that? And the answer is this. If Jesus is going to give her this fountain of living water, if Jesus is really going to do that, then that means that she's going to have to forsake her broken cistern that does not hold water. Do you understand? If we want to find satisfaction in Christ alone, if we want to have our parched, weary, thirsty souls satisfied by the water without end, It means that we're going to have to forsake our broken cisterns. It would be cruel. It would be cruel of a doctor or a surgeon to know that there was something wrong with a patient and to not reveal that. And Jesus, in the same way, is actually doing what is best for her. He's actually bringing this to the surface so that it can be dealt with, so it can be revealed, so it can be brought into the light and killed in the sunlight of his grace. Now, I've been a pastor long enough to know this. People don't just end up in this kind of situation. People don't just end up going through five marriages. That's not... Nobody wakes up in the morning hoping for that to happen. And I think we can look at this woman and we can acknowledge and guess that there is a whole history of things in the back of her life. And there, I'm willing to bet my money on this, although, I mean, I don't have much money, so that doesn't count for much. But what I do have, I'm willing to bet on this, that not everything that is wrong with her life is her fault. And that, of course, Jesus is bringing these things up, uh, bringing things up that she's done wrong, but there's a whole history, and, and there's a whole history of things that have happened to her to get her to this place. And so a question, which I think is a fair question, is this. 
is this really fair of Jesus? I mean, is it fair of Jesus to bring this up? Is it fair to bring up these things that are that that maybe she feels like she didn't have control over in her life? Is it fair to to bring up her sin when her sin itself has been in some sense encouraged by the sins that have been done to her? And so I just think we need to parse this out and just think about this for a little bit. The Bible Bible doesn't, uh, what we see here Jesus doing is Jesus is not putting blame on her for the sins that have been done to her. But he's asking her to take responsibility for the things that she has done wrong. The, the, that this woman at the well, maybe the history of her life, maybe the things that have happened to her, and maybe trauma that she's experienced, and broken relationships, and people who've let her down, maybe that loaded the gun. But she's the one who shot it, she's the one who pulled the trigger. To write off sin, to write off sin as a mere consequence of suffering that somebody has experienced in the past, does not give somebody dignity. It takes dignity away. It pretends that that person themselves does not have agency. That person themselves is not capable of bearing responsibility. And it's not what this woman believes to be true anyways. Because later on in this narrative, we'll see that this woman herself takes responsibility. She says in verse 29, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And again in verse 39, she said, He told me that all that I ever did. That Jesus is offering her a, a chance at living water. And For that to happen, she's going to have to acknowledge the ways that she personally has been drinking out of a broken cistern. Now, I just want to say this as well. Even though this is, I I believe this is true, notice how gentle and careful and pastoral Jesus is in going about this. It's not like Jesus doesn't know who this woman is the minute that she comes up. It's not like Jesus is ignorant about her history. It's not, it's not like Jesus uh, couldn't have just said, before he even asked her for a drink, brought this all up. Uh, Jesus is as, as gentle as he can be and as pastoral. He, he's being a shepherd here. He's being careful. He's not, he's not being cruel. He's not deliberately heaping on her shame so much as bringing what is already there to the surface. And even though what he says here is blunt, and even though what what we're going to see here in verse 19, that she changes the subject very rapidly, I believe that Jesus has brought this up to let it percolate and simmer in the back of her mind. And it will be returned to shortly. And so we see in verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews." 
The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Um, this passage reminds me of a, a time in, um, where we lived before we moved here. Uh, I was talking to somebody, and I, 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 there've been, I've heard, because I worked in the restaurant industry for a while, I've heard a fair amount of profanity, but this was... This was up there, and this person it was a they they were a real artist with their language, and they were they were really they had they had this uh, they they were going on this spiel, and they were you know just foul mouthed, and um, and uh, I was talking to them, and finally they got around to asking me what I did, which I said, well, I'm a pastor. And they said, yeah, I'm a really devout Christian, and. Um, you know, I, I don't read my Bible or go to church, but I'm, I'm a devout Christian like you, Pastor. That's kind of what we, we see happening here in verse six, uh, uh, verse um, 19. The, the woman abruptly changes tones of conversation because she ob- obviously uh, realizes that she has been, you know, that what she's done has been made known. So she obviously changes the... Um, the, the, the conversation and and moves it into a sphere of abstract abstract religious debate and so she brings up this debate between the Jews and the Samaritans uh, the Jewish the Jews had their temple on Jerusalem and the Samaritans who kind of were a deviation of Judaism had their temple um, on a mountain called Mount Gerizim and so she says well who's right and notice how Jesus turns the conversation back to the matter at hand. On the one hand, he says, we are. We're right. But it doesn't really matter. It's all a moot point. Because the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in, the, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to spirit to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. What He is saying here is He is turning the the, the conversation to the matter at hand. He's pressing it upon her soul, and, and essentially He's reminding her of these passages that I've already read for you. Because in these passages, and in more like them, like in Ezekiel thirty six and thirty seven, um, and in Isaiah eleven. Um, you see that there's this offer that in the new covenant, the people of God are going to worship through the Spirit. And so by turning this and saying, yeah, it's really more about worshiping in the Spirit and, and the hour is coming and is now here when this is going to be possible, Jesus is implying that you too can worship in the Spirit. You don't have to travel to Gerizim anymore. You don't have to travel to Jerusalem anymore. That you too can have salvation. You too can satisfy your soul. You too can come to the Father. And we see that all of her resistance is spent at this point. That she, her guards are down. Her defenses have been beat down. So the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now this word Messiah just means anointed one. So sometimes we read the word Christ or we see Messiah and that just means anointed one. 
And, and they're all the reason that, that that's kind of shorthand for for the savior figure who will come is because we, we see in Isaiah eleven, for example, that the Messiah that is to come will be anointed with the Spirit. That's all that, that that's all that that name Christ means. And so, and that's relevant because Jesus has been talking about worshiping in the Spirit and in truth. And so when the woman says, I know that the anointed one, the Messiah, who's called the Christ, I know that when he comes, he'll tell us all things because he will have the Spirit and he can give the Spirit. And Jesus says in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. That I am the one that will bring the Spirit. I am the one that will teach you all things. I am the one that will enact the covenant. As we've already seen in the Gospel of John, what this will require is that Jesus himself will be lifted up as a sacrifice for sins. That in his body, the curse will be cursed. That sin will be put to death. That all of the punishment, all of the wrath for this this woman and for all of us will be put upon him and he will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he will drink the cup of God's wrath to the dregs. This is all coming in the Gospel of John. And so Jesus has the great joy, the great privilege of offering that salvation because he knows that he is going to accomplish it. And from what we can see with this woman, she takes him on his word. Because we see that this woman apparently receives him and bears fruit. Let me show you in verses 27 through 30. I know some of you are wondering, How's he going to get 31 through 45? That's next week. We're going to do this two-part sermon, okay? Mean, uh, just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So what we see here is three, three fruits that this woman displays. One, she acknowledges and takes responsibility for her own sin, as we've already said. She recognizes that she has done wrong. She says, come see this man who told me all that I ever did. She seems to know and acknowledge who Christ is. She says, can this be the Christ? And she shares the good news. That because she has received him, she goes out and she tells others about him. See, what we see in all of this passage is that Jesus reveals her sin. He doesn't, he doesn't just roll over it. He doesn't pretend it doesn't exist. He doesn't just get over it. But he also doesn't cancel her. He reveals her sin so that he can offer her thirsty soul living water. And he does the same for us. That Jesus reveals our sin. He brings it into the light. He doesn't just pretend that it doesn't exist. And and he certainly does not just pretend that we don't exist. He reveals our sin so that he can offer our thirsty souls living water. So as we turn to apply this, let me start just by saying this, number one. Jesus can offer living water because he is living water. Jesus can offer living water because he himself is living water. Uh, Blaise Pascal, who was um, 
was a thinker. He helped to invent modern, the modern uh, calculator, helped to invent modern geometry, helped to invent modern uh, algebra. So you math people, this is like American Idol for you, okay? He's a big deal. Um, he, he said this, the God of the Christians is a God who makes the soul feel that he is her only good that her only rest is in him, that her only delight is in loving him. Reminds me of the story of Augustine or Augustine. Augustine, if you don't know, was a, a man who was raised in a Christian home and he, he wandered far away from the faith. He kind of in, in, dabbled and engaged with every alternate lifestyle. He was an extreme hedonist, um, he was a professor, essentially, of, of rhetoric. He, he had a, a thriving professional life. He was a, a kind of a mystical, spiritual person. He was involved in a, a, a cult for a while, and then he kind of abandoned that. He's very philosophical. And Augustine uh, found that none of that satisfied him. Wealth, success, sex, none of it satisfied his soul. And he was kind of going to a church because his mom really wanted him to go to this church. And he was going to this church and he was listening to this preaching. And, and, and he thought he heard someone tell him to take up and read. And it was actually a copy of the book of Romans. So he took it up and read it. And of course, Augustine became a Christian. You can read all about Augustine's life and the confessions. You should. It's a great book. But Augustine said this, You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest. In thee. Jesus can give living water because Jesus is living water. Which means, number two, that Jesus meets us in our shame. Jesus doesn't pretend that our shame doesn't exist. Jesus doesn't pretend that these things that have been done to, he, he doesn't pretend that, that none of that's there, but he meets us where we're at. He gives us dignity in those moments. He, he meets us in our shame. So maybe you, you're here this morning and maybe you ha- have something in your life that has happened to you, something that you're ashamed of, something that's been done to you, maybe something that you've done. And maybe you're, you feel so alone and so far from God. I just want you to know this morning that Jesus meets us in our shame. I say this all the time. Some of you have talked about this with me before, and I, I say this regularly. None of us get to heaven without a limp. None of us get to heaven without a limp. But that means that only limping people are allowed. That only people who have a limp, only people who, who have recognized their sin and who have recognized their shame only those people are allowed. Jesus meets us in our shame. Number three, Jesus reveals our sin. Jesus reveals our sin. Uh, this is, again, because he loves us. Richard Sibbs, who's a, a pastor um, in England a couple of centuries ago, said this, and this is part of this, is, and more is printed in your bulletin. He said this, For the concluding of this point and our encouragement to a thorough work of bruising and patience under God's bruising of us, let all know 
that none are fitter for comfort than those that think themselves furthest off. Men, for the most part, are not lost enough in their own feeling for a Savior. A holy despair in ourselves is the ground of true hope. In God, the fatherless find mercy. If men were more fatherless, they should feel more God's fatherly affection from heaven. For the God who dwells in the highest heavens dwells likewise in the lowest soul. As, Jesus, as John himself will say, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That Jesus reveals our sin. And if the longer that you're a Christian, the more true that this gets. Uh, the high school boys just finished doing this great book called The Gospel-Centered Life. And one of the things that I love about that book, I think we have one or two copies in our giveaway shelf, is it talks about how the longer that you're a Christian, the worse about your sin that you will feel. The holy, you'll be actually getting holier, but the closer you get to Jesus, the more that you'll recognize how far, much farther away it is uh, you were from it all along. And Christians, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you know that this is true. That God is always showing us things that we need to grow and always showing us ways that we need to mature, always showing us things that we need to correct our understanding of. God is always renewing our minds. Why? Because he loves us. If you had a house and it had a number of different wells and a number of different lines to draw water from the ground, and five of those lines were poisonous, and one was true living water, you would want to cut all the lines of poison out. That's just good common sense. And in the same way, the longer that we are drinking of this living water, the more that we recognize that the bitter springs of our own sin will not satisfy us. So Jesus reveals our sin. Which means, num number four, I think, that we should not let past or even present suffering become a mental excuse for present sin. Let me say that again. We should not allow our past or even our present suffering to become a mental excuse for our sin. In my life, you know, I experienced some things that were very traumatic at a very pivotal age when I was uh, growing up. That wasn't my fault. I don't take responsibility for those things. But the ways that I reacted and responded to that, the hypocrisy and the people-pleasing, the self-righteousness, the, the, the self, uh, the, even the self-pity, the attention-seeking that came out of that, that was, that was my fault. Those things I do need to take responsibility for. That needing to give and seek forgiveness, I did need to, to engage. I, I, I didn't load the gun, but I did pull the trigger. We must not allow past 
or even present suffering to become an excuse for present sin. But number five, if this morning you are feeling bruised, if you are feeling struck down, if you are feeling parched, come thirsty. Come thirsty. What Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 55, 1, that everyone who thirsts come to the waters, especially if you have no money, especially if you feel like your works cannot add up, especially if you feel so guilty and so struck down and smitten. Let everyone who thirsts come to the waters, come thirsty. Do not allow your thirst to go on any longer, but come to the fountain of living waters. Which means, number six, true faith bears fruit. Or or as Jesus says, if, if we drink of this fountain of living waters, that welling up inside of us will be a fountain of water leading to eternal life. So Jesus says with this woman. And in, in this passage, we see this woman bear a number of fruits. We see her recognize her own sin, recognize who Christ is in sharing the good news of the gospel. We'll talk a lot about what it means to share the good news of the gospel. But if you are here this morning and you are feeling and wondering, is, is my, is, has this happened to me? Have I met Jesus Oftentimes we put such a weight on experience and we don't often enough, I think, calibrate that correctly with fruit. Look at the fruit in your life. Look at the ways that God has grown you. Look at the ways that you would be different if you'd never met Jesus. And take joy of those things, not because of how wonderful those things are, but because of the sign that it is that Christ is working you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Uh, number seven, I think what this also means is this, that the more that we want to be satisfied with this fountain of living waters, the more that we want to receive Christ, the more that we're going to have to forsake broken cisterns. These idols in our lives, these things in our lives that pull us away from our affection in Christ, that rob us of joy in the Lord. These things that we choose to love ahead of God, these things that we are unwilling to sacrifice to have more of Jesus. These things that will never satisfy our thirsty souls. We must be willing to forsake those things. To pick up our cross, as Jesus says, and to follow him. And maybe you're feeling the weight of that this morning. Maybe you're, you're here and you're not a Christian. And you're feeling the weight of that and you're wondering, can this be true for me? It can maybe you're here and you've been a Christian for a long time. And you're recognizing and seeing that there's a broken cistern in your life somewhere that you're looking for satisfaction. You're looking to, to satisfy your soul. Christian, forsake that fountain, that broken cistern. Which means number eight. Number eight. And I think this is absolutely essential. And this holds this all together. The living water really is that good. It really is worth giving up everything. 
it really is worth setting aside those broken cisterns. It really is worth taking up your cross and following him. It really is worth it to lose everything in life if the only thing you have is Jesus. It's worth it to sell the field to find the pearl of great price. It's worth it. And everyone here who's, who's made that decision, who's made that choice, can tell you the same thing. It's worth it. The sacrifices are worth it. The, the loss is worth it. The death is worth it because it is the fountain of living water. So if you are wondering this morning, the sacrifice, the, the forsaking of the broken cistern to be satisfied in Christ, can I trust that that's going to be enough for me? I would tell you, yes, and then some. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us a fountain of living water. And it is good water. It is worth it. It satisfies the thirstiest soul. And it feeds the hungriest spirit. It fulfills the deepest longings of our heart. It makes being willing to forsake broken cisterns make sense. So, Father in heaven, I pray for all of us who are here that you would implant deep in our minds this one truth that indeed he is worthy and he is worth it. And it is worth it to have him, even if it means we have nothing else, because to have him is everything. It's in the name of your son that we pray. Amen.